Welcome to the Jeff Eby Show. Jeff Eby Show. Where the talk is all about Dixon County. Live from beautiful downtown Dixon in the historic Reagan's Arcade. Welcome to the Jeff Eby Show, where the talk is all about Dixon County. We are guest-focused and listener-supported. Like us on Facebook and subscribe on YouTube at The Jeff Eby Show. Now, here is your host, Jeff Eby. Well, welcome. We welcome you today to the show. I'm your host, Jeff Eby. And uh, just if you will, please like and share this video right now when you, if you're watching it live or even if you're watching it uh, on, on uh, Facebook later and on our YouTube channel at the Jeff Eby Show, please like and subscribe. And uh, our goal is just to get this information out to as many people as we can. And we can do that if you will like and share these videos. So Today we have a really uh, a great guest that I'm really excited to talk to, and it's our DA, Ray Crouch. And Ray, I really, really appreciate you being here today. Well, I'm glad to be here. I, I really appreciate you inviting me. I, I, I don't like when you introduce me as a great guest. I'm, I'm probably going to be a, a boring guest. No, no, not at all. I know, I know you've been busy here the last uh, few weeks. Yes, sir. We have been busy. Like night and day. Night and day, yeah. yes. So I want to go ahead and uh, talk a little bit, just kind of get some background on you sure. and kind of, you know, how you got into the DA position. So um, just uh, give, a, give us a little background. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very fortunate uh, how I got into my position. Uh, I grew up in Kingston Springs, Tennessee, which is in Cheatham County. Right. And I went to Harpeth High School. Then I went to David Lipscomb University for undergraduate degree. And I majored in finance and economics because I thought I wanted to go into business. Right. But I wanted to combine that with law school. So I went to the University of Memphis Law School. When I got into law school, I, uh, I took a couple of classes in criminal law and trial advocacy. And I learned that I liked to be in the courtroom. So then I shifted from business uh, to criminal procedure and trial advocacy even more. And when I graduated from law school, uh, Dan Alsabrooks, who was the district attorney in Dixon County at the time, hired me directly out of law school. Cool. So that's how I got started. Yeah, most attorneys really don't want to be in the courtroom, do that. In, in my experience, they want to do business law, uh, and you know, you don't really have to be in the courtroom that much. But yeah, in criminal law, it's courtroom completely. If you're in criminal law, either as a prosecutor or a defense attorney, you have to be in the courtroom. I mean, there's there's no hiding. You, right. you have to be in the courtroom. Right. Uh, and, and you know that when you go to law school, as you're practicing and taking different clinics, uh, whether you want to be a courtroom or what I call a trial lawyer or not. Right. So you uh, you were hired by the DA here. That's correct. And you worked as an investigator or whatever? No, I was hired as an assistant district attorney. Gotcha. Uh, every DA in the state has a district, and each district attorney has uh, several assistant district attorney positions to cover all the courts. So he hired me uh, literally right out of law school. I moved back home, cool. took the bar exam, and started working. Right. So now you're married and you got yes, kids. Yes, yes. Tell us about that. So that's the best part of my life. Right. I'm, I'm married uh, to Jessica Crouch, and I have we have two kids, Marvin and Lucy. They're twins. They're ten years old. So. And now you currently live in uh, Ashland City. Yeah, we live in Ashland City right now. And then you drive to <clears throat> uh, to 
Charlotte almost probably every day. Almost every day. My primary office is in Charlotte. Of course, as you know, I have five counties that I represent, so I do a lot of driving, but my primary office is in Charlotte. Right. Talk about that a little bit, about the makeup of uh, um, the 23rd Judicial District sure. a little bit. Well, the 23rd District is is five counties, Cheatham, Dixon, Humphreys, Houston, and Stewart. So I am, uh, by statute, required to represent all five counties in all criminal cases. So uh, not only do I do a lot of driving, we go, and my staff, we go to a lot of court. There is, uh, well, and we can talk about the court system later, but, yeah. but with a five-county district, uh, I spend some time in each county. Wow. So what, what are the counties again? Cheatham, Dixon, Humphreys, Houston, and Stewart. All right. And we talked a little bit about this. So, so like if there is some kind of trial or whatever in one of these other counties, you actually have to go to those counties. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, each county has its own, uh, I guess you would say, jurisdiction. If a crime happens in Humphreys County, the case has to be prosecuted in Humphreys County. I see. Uh, and same for all the, uh, for each of the five counties. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so uh, we, we talked a little bit about this, about the, our new Criminal Justice Center uh, and how yes. well that yes. has uh, come about and how well it actually works for the courts or whatever. Well, I would like to personally say thank you to the citizens of Dixon County and to the uh, government officials, the county commissioners, the county mayor, and all those who have uh, pushed to provide us with a Dixon County Justice Center. It is... Uh, a flagship of justice centers. I mean, it really is. But from my perspective, being in the courtroom almost every day, it has been such a huge help because uh, previously in the old courthouse, we had one courtroom in which we could have a jury trial. We now have multiple courtrooms where multiple cases can be going, multiple judges at the same time. It's going to bring a lot more efficiency to the criminal justice center. And, you know, if you're a taxpayer, uh, you you had probably good concern as to, well, why are we spending this money? Well, in the big picture, I think it's actually going to save Dixon County money because it's less time that you have to house inmates. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're very proud of that. And uh, I think it, I think all the judges, we have uh, several judges coming up on the show and I think they're very uh, proud and just awesome, you know, that, we have such a place like this that we can, you know, actually bring justice to yes. this area. Yes. So what are what are some of the, the other counties? What kind of uh, um, venues do they have for that? Well, <clears throat> as with most counties in Tennessee, uh, the venues for court are aging. You know, right. I mean, there's not a lot of new justice complexes across the state. So the other four counties in our district are operating out of, uh, you know, much older buildings, and, and, and none of them have multiple courtrooms. In fact, uh, in some of the counties, uh, we have General Sessions Court is shared with circuit court. Oh, wow. So not only do you have to share criminal circuit judge space, but General Sessions judge and juvenile court as well. Uh, so having a complex like Dixon, it just it, it makes everything run more efficient. Now, we have, uh, how many judges we have in the 23rd District? A lot. Yeah, we do. <laughs> okay. Well, so that's, that's a good question because we have circuit court judges, which would be the highest level of court on the local level. We have three circuit judges. Then we, each county has a general sessions judge. Uh, each county has a juvenile court judge. But interestingly enough, 
some general sessions judges are also the juvenile court judge. Now in Dixon County, you have both a general sessions judge right. and a juvenile court judge. Uh, and then not only that, you have uh, in every county multiple municipal court judges. If a city chooses to have a municipal court, for example, the city of Dixon has a municipal court. It doesn't have criminal jurisdiction, but they have a municipal court. And so there will be a judge there as well. Okay. Is that is that I think that's just a local attorney that actually does that. It is, and that's appointed. Now, if a city court elects to have criminal court jurisdiction, then the judge has to be elected. And then my office also goes and covers court there. For example, in White Bluff, they have criminal court jurisdiction. And Leonard Belmares, who's a private practice attorney, but he's also a duly elected General Sessions judge. Mm. They don't refer to it as General Sessions Court, but he has General Sessions jurisdiction. Gotcha, gotcha. So give us a, a typical day for you. Well, a typical day for me is... Uh, is ho- on a good day, I get to see my kids and wife yeah. before I leave to go to work. But for the past three weeks, I've been leaving the house before they do and getting home after they're in bed. But on a typical day, when I'm not in trial, I will get to the office and and, and review cases, uh, have meetings with victims, have meetings with witnesses, and spend a lot of time in preparation for upcoming trials. Now, keep in mind, I have staff spread out over five counties. Right. And we have offices in three of those counties, so I may be driving uh, to one uh, or more county in any given day. Uh, what I really like about my job is it's not monotonous at all. I mean, I'm, I'm doing sure. something different almost every day. For example, uh, next week in Dixon County and in Houston County, we have grand jury meeting. So before I came to this meeting with you, I was reviewing grand jury indictments. So it's something different every day. Now let's talk about that because I, I, you know, I, I want to kind of educate people why why we have you here because you're going to be the guy that knows sure. it all. Um, <clears throat> grand jury, how mm-hmm. does that work? Well, grand jury is in Tennessee a uh, a, a procedural uh, requirement in the law. It it is a the the grand jury is a body of people uh, that are their their entire purpose is to review a criminal case and determine that there is actually probable cause. Uh, to charge somebody with a crime. Most of the cases that go to a grand jury uh, have originated by an arrest warrant or a citation, and they start off in a lower court. I referred to them earlier as a a general sessions or a municipal court. Right. 90%, maybe even 95% of all cases are uh, initiated by an arrest warrant or a citation that start in a lower court. And in that lower court, uh, the defendant is entitled to a preliminary hearing, and, and, or they can waive their preliminary hearing. If, if, if they waive their preliminary hearing or if they have one, the judge has to determine probable cause, okay? Once a judge has determined probable cause, their case is bound over to the grand jury. So essentially what, you've, what you have is a, any person who's charged with a crime, uh, their case will be, begin in general sessions court okay. where a judge, a judge determines probable cause, and then the grand jury also determines probable cause. And if a ju- grand jury determines probable cause, the person is then indicted and their case is moved into circuit court. Okay, so... And that's kind of a nutshell. Right, right. <clears throat> so let's say the judge doesn't find probable cause. Would, would it still go to the grand jury? It could. That, that's a, a great question. So if we have a preliminary hearing in general sessions court and, and a judge does not find probable cause, because that means that the state has not met our burden of proof. Uh, and that's the judge's job is to dismiss the case if the state has not met the burden of proof. Well, let's say the case is dismissed. At that point in time, uh, double jeopardy has, has 
not attached because right. it was a probable cause hearing. Right. Uh, we can present the case to the grand jury, and normally we would not do that if, if we don't have additional evidence that comes out. So when a case gets presented to the grand jury, uh, we, it's called a presentment if it's coming directly from our office or, or if it's been dismissed and we decide to reinitiate the case. Okay, so when a, when a, let's say somebody, and I, I guess a lot of this could be like drug cases or whatever, right? Yes. Well, yeah. So, so an officer uh, does a stop. They find drugs. Mm-hmm. All right. They go to, um, I guess, the magistrate at that point, and then, then it's referred to your office at that point? Well, it depends. You know, on a, uh, if a police officer makes a traffic stop and discovers drugs in a car on a person, they're probably going to charge them or arrest that person right then, and that case would automatically begin in a general sessions court. Now, if you have uh, the drug task force or a investigator that's working an undercover drug investigation, a lot of those cases never go to general sessions court. They are what's called direct presentments to the grand jury. And is that what you were yes. talking about? Yeah. Well, and, and so in Tennessee law, it's there is no requirement that a case has to be brought first in general sessions court. Uh, it it's, can be brought directly to a grand jury by presentment, uh, which is the same as an indictment. It's just the format of how it gets to the grand jury. And that's another purpose of the grand jury is again to be a uh, a check in the in the governmental process to ensure that there's probable cause to actually charge somebody with a crime. Right. So now the purpose. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say. So does it have to go to a grand jury, or can the DA's office just say, "No, we're going to prosecute this"? No. It if if your case if you're if you end up as a defendant in criminal court, your case had to go through the grand jury. Okay. There is one exception. The defendant, but only the defendant, not the prosecutor, the defendant can waive his right to a grand jury proceeding and, and can get into circuit court by what's called a criminal information. That is rarely used. It is a, an exceptional uh, method of getting a case into criminal court. I, I, in fact, I can't remember the last time that's happened. Yeah, why would, uh, why would somebody want to do that? I mean, is there I, an advantage to that? There, there, there's, there's really not an advantage unless it is a case that uh, perhaps the defendant has an attorney and 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 the the evidence is just so absolute that the defendant wants to just admit guilt and go directly to a sentencing phase or or a plea of guilt. So that's why I say though, I, I can't remember the last time a criminal infor- a true criminal information occurred in our five counties. Do, so, do they happen? They yeah. can, but it's rare. So if they choose to go that route, they don't really have a a, uh, a jury trial at that point, right? Uh, that's correct. And so the, they just go to the sentencing phase pretty yeah, much? That, yeah. If, if a criminal information occurs, that means that they are likely, they, they have already decided to enter a plea of guilt because you're waiving your right to a grand jury to review the case. Okay. All right. We're going to go to a break real quick and uh, stay with us because we got a lot of great stuff to talk about, and we'll be back here in just a minute.
all make bad choices. Your insurance carrier doesn't have to be one of them. Make a choice you won't regret. The foremost choice. Are you looking for your dream home? Well, Lee Realty Group guarantees you the perfect home. With our expert agents that have over 100 years of combined experience, you are assured 100% customer satisfaction. If you are buying or selling, Lee Realty Group is your local veteran-owned real estate company. Contact us now at 615-446-2006 or online at leerealtygrouponline.com. Like us on Facebook at Lee Realty Group. You've dreamed about the perfect house, a place to call your own, and a place to not only stretch out, but to grow. Auto Owners protects your house because to you, it's home. That's simple human sense. Ask EB Insurance and Dixon if Auto Owners makes sense for you. We're back with uh, District Attorney Ray Crouch, and I kind of wanted to continue our discussion a little bit. We were, we were just talking about this during break, about when somebody gets into this system, how expensive it is and how hard it is to really get out of it. I mean, it's almost a perpetual thing. that uh, That's what I see, that people get in this, and they just it's just so expensive, it's just hard for them to get out of. Yeah, well, everything about the court process is expensive for defendants. Um, I see every day examples of what you're talking about. Somebody who is charged with a minor offense, uh, and that's, I guess, kind of relative, but let's say yeah. driving on revoked license. Well, they go in and they pay their fines and court costs, or they try to, and then they also have to pay to have their license reinstated to get back where you have a valid license. I mean, right. you're required in Tennessee to have a, a valid license. Well, if they haven't paid their fine and court cost off and they get caught driving again, guess what? They get another citation. They're back in court with more fines and costs and fees. Uh, it is a problem. I mean, it's not an excuse for violating the law. But here's the thing. We have zero, well, almost zero means of public transportation. Right. So it's an eight ball effect is what I call it, behind the eight ball. I mean, you have to still go to work. You have to try to pay off these court costs, but yet you can't drive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a problem. Yes. There, there, you know, and there have been proposals to have, uh, I guess, what you would call diversion courts where you could come in and, and, and maybe avoid having to pay some of those costs and fees. But keep in mind, there's mandatory state costs and there's costs that are imposed by the county. So it can be overwhelming to some folks. All right. So let's say, you know, this guy gets, a woman gets pulled over. They're on a revoke license. They get a ticket. They have to go to general sessions court. Mm -hmm. um, they're found guilty, guilty because obviously they were driving on a revoke, right. revoke license. Right. So what, what is a typical fine? What, what is a typical cost of that after somebody gets into that system? Well, every court is different. And like I said, you have general sessions courts and municipal courts. So the municipal courts can determine their own costs that are not state mandated. Right. Um, but the typical actual state fine is really small in comparison to what the court costs are. You know, 
a lot of times on a driving on a revoked license, the, the criminal fine is 50 bucks, but the court costs can be 300 to $500. Right. I mean, that's the big tax and it's a tax. I mean, that's what right. it is. Right. So, so like for, for what you were talking about, you know, somebody does that and they, they get into the system, they have to pay all this stuff to get their license reinstated. Yes. And some of them can't afford that. Yeah. So they drive and then they get pulled over again. Yep. And that's just all exacerbated at that point. It, it very well can be. I mean, if you're, let's say, down on your luck or out of a job for a certain period of time, uh, you can you can easily get overwhelmed with court costs and fines. Here's the thing. My, my, the job of my office is not we're not in the collections business. Right, right, right. So, I, you know, I recognize that there is an issue with people that uh, that get behind the eight ball. And I, can't, I hate to keep using that term, but that's what happens. Yes. And they don't have a way to pay these fines. Now, there are the, – the Department of Safety has methods of what's called slow, pl- slow pay plans where if you lose your license, you can do payments. But there's a lot of other cases that aren't necessarily driving offenses, simple possession, for example. Right. Uh, where there's fines and costs, and you know there's not a and then a you have probation pay. with that, right? Yeah. Which which is a whole another cost. And and a lot of times on a driving offense, you're not on supervised probation. Right. You're just on a you're you're given X number of months where you're on unsupervised probation with that court to pay off your fines and costs. But if you haven't paid off the fine and cost, then the court is likely to extend your probation, and it just can get. Yeah, and then every time you go to, like, a probation meeting or whatever, you have to pay a certain amount of money or whatever. You know, uh, and this may lead us into a different topic altogether, but uh, there are not, just to be clear, there's not a bunch of inmates sitting in jail for driving on a revoked license. Right, right. Right. You know, we have, (laughs) well, people have often asked me, well, why are you jailing all these people for driving on a revoked license? That's, it's, it's usually never that. Right. Because you don't want people in jail for that. No. Now, now some of them... Unless you're habitual well, or whatever. Well, habitual, but more concerning are the habitual DUI offenders. Right. Now that's Those the, people yeah. we want to not be driving, and, and they are prosecuted. Now, getting to that on the DUI, like, I, like, I don't know how many it is, like one or two, you actually can go to state prison? Oh, yeah. So, DUI becomes a felony, and... So the, the law is very complicated when it comes to not, I shouldn't say complicated, but it, it's very uh, extensive when it comes to punishment for DUI. There's a mandatory minimum at each level, and your fourth offense is a, a felony. I can't believe anybody would have a fourth offense, but it happens. Oh, it happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and then so uh, then that's when they can actually get sentenced to like prison to the Tennessee Department of Corrections. Right. Yes. Right. Okay. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about, I know uh, we Dixon has kind of been on the national news with yep. uh, these back-to-back trials, and I, I know you probably really didn't want it to be back-to-back, but given that, you know, sometimes you don't have control over that, yep. that's just the way it happens. So let's talk about let's talk about the Wiggins trial, sure. the, the one that just wrapped up. Literally yesterday. Right, right. <laughs> I know. I was worried if you were going to be able to come on the show or yeah, not, but yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that you that you did. But so let's let's go through that. Just how kind of that transpired, how that gets through the system, and then it, and then you were talking about this is the first death penalty case in Dixon County, and I don't know how many years. Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first death penalty prosecution uh, in Dixon County since the mid '90s. Uh, 
I think Jerry Ray Davidson was the last death penalty case in Dixon County. In in fact, I think it's the last Dixon or death penalty case in the twenty third district. Wow. Wow. Yes. So okay, from arrest, like like how does that how does that go through the court system like that? Well or, and it gets to your office. Sure. So in the case of Stephen Wiggins, uh, there were arrest warrants issued for homicide uh, right out of the gate, but we did uh, present his charges directly to the grand jury, which we discussed that earlier. Right. That's one method of prosecution. There was initially, if you rem- remember, there was a two-day manhunt. Right. So a warrant was issued for his arrest. He had already been identified from the body camera. I mean, right. we knew who they were looking for. Uh, but... Until the investigation was complete, we weren't exactly sure the additional charges. So he was actually indicted on 12 separate charges. Um, and those in those cases went directly to the grand jury. I see. Mm-hmm. And then from the grand, once he gets indicted by the grand jury, then, that, then your office pretty much takes over from that point? Well, my office in the Wiggins case was involved uh, from day one. In fact, I had uh, criminal investigators and assistant DAs on the scene. When we get cases that we know are going to be lengthy prosecutions, homicides, uh, large investigations, we try to get involved with law enforcement right out of the gate because uh, you have – I mean, it takes a team to, yes. to build these cases. So in that case, we were involved literally from day one forward. Uh, but once once Mr. Wiggins was indicted, then the procedural hurdles – uh, start coming at you, which uh, included um, many, many motions. I think in the Wiggins case, uh, there were a total of seventy-eight or seventy-nine filings by the wow. by the defense, which is an extraordinary amount, but expected when we're seeking the death penalty. Right, right. Now his attorney was appointed by the court, I guess. Right. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So. How does it make it, you know, I know COVID had a lot to do with the delay of a lot of this stuff. uh, And and that was a whole different issue that y'all kind of had to deal with through that whole thing. How how did that impact your office? This case was set for trial originally in 2020. And the defense uh, added an additional attorney and they asked for a continuance. That happens in a lot of cases. Um, and then it was set for August of, of last year. So let me, I was one year off. It was originally set for trial in 2019 and got bumped with the additional attorney to 2020. And then uh, in the summer of last year, we were set for trial, and that's when yeah. COVID had shut down the court system. And when I say it cut down, shut down the court system, the Supreme Court shut us down. Okay. All right. So, um, so you, 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 you get ready for trial. Talk a little bit about what's involved getting ready for trial for something like that. I, I mean, it has to be very extensive and a lot of hours from your office and you personally trying to trying to get ready for that. Well, there are countless hours spent, and we're, again, we're working hand-in-hand hand with the investigators. I mean, we have a, a room in my office called the War Room, and, and for big trials like this, we, we stay in the War Room the whole time. I mean, you're reviewing every bit of evidence. You're meeting with every witness. In this case, uh, we had over, I think it was somewhere in the mid-70s, 75, 76 witnesses subpoenaed. Now, we didn't have to call that many witnesses, but you never know uh, who you will end up calling at trial. 
redacting transcripts, uh, editing video. And when I say redacting and editing, that's, that is to comply with the orders of the court and all the motions that we've already heard. So getting up to trial, a large part of that is actually having hearings for 70-some-odd motions. That, that is wow. a lot of time in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as far as the jury is concerned, then you have to go out of the Dixon County to try to get a jury or whatever. Yes, in this case, we went to Knoxville to pick a jury. And, and quite frankly, the state, we agreed with the defense right out of the gate that we would have to have a jury panel from a different county. It, the reason that I agreed is because it makes the case uh, less likely to have an appellate issue. Right. Because this case was so publicized and everybody, I mean, so many people knew and worked with Sergeant Baker and love and still love his family. It was just a no brainer for me that uh, we don't want that to be an issue on appeal. So we agreed to pick a jury from a different district. And And it was a national story. Yeah. National story. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you, the jury's picked from whatever and they're sequestered, right? Sequestered. So that means they don't have any access to any media at all. They, their phones, electronic devices, any means of communication are taken from them at the onset when they're sworn in and they don't get them back again. The only way they're even allowed to talk to family or friends, not even friends, is they have to use a bailiff's phone and the bailiff literally stands there next to them and it's on speakerphone and and they that's the only way they're allowed to communicate and even those are very restricted i mean these people are one step away from being prison right actually uh, there's more more prisoners have yeah. access to phones <laughs> than, than sequestered jurors it's something ain't right about that either but right. whatever and that, this one, this jury was sequestered, what, three weeks or something like that? It took us a week to pick the jury in Knoxville. So as they were being selected, they weren't under sequestration. But as soon as we had the 16, they were sworn in and sequestered from that point forward. So they were there from a, they were under sequestra- sequestration from Sunday until last night. Wow. So almost two weeks. Right. And then you, you actually have to go up to Knoxville to, be in the jury selection oh, part I, of yeah, w- Yes. The state and the defense, obviously the judge is presiding over the proceedings, but the state, in a capital case, the state and the defense have an obligation to question every juror that is uh, potentially to be, has potential to be seated on that panel. And that, that takes, that's a pretty long process, isn't it, it? It is because we're doing them one juror at a time. Right. In, in a normal trial, you would bring an entire panel of jurors into the courtroom, right. and you would do your voir dire or jury selection with everybody in the room. Uh, but in a capital case, you're bringing them in one person at a time. And the point of that is what's called death qualification. Every juror seated in this case went through the death qualification process. They had to agree under oath and be questioned, agreeing that they would consider what's called the aggravating circumstances, which is what we use to seek the death penalty, as well as the mitigating factors, which is what the defense argues uh, to keep him from being sentenced to death. And if they say, I won't consider either that I'm always death penalty or I'm always non-death penalty, then they are disqualified from serving on the jury. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, we're going to go to break real quick, real, real quick, and we'll be back here. Stay with us. We've got a lot more uh, to talk about with uh, Ray Crouch, so stay with us. We'll be right back. You've dreamed about the perfect house, a place to call your own, and a place to not only stretch out, but to grow. Auto Owners protects your house because to you, It's home. That's simple human sense. 
Ask EB Insurance in Dixon if auto owners make sense for you. Happy to help, man. I was just over there talking to myself anyway. Are you looking for your dream home? Well, Lee Realty Group guarantees you the perfect home. With our expert agents that have over 100 years of combined experience, you are assured 100% customer satisfaction. If you are buying or selling, Lee Realty Group is your local veteran-owned real estate company. Contact us now at 615-446-2006 or online at leerealtygrouponline.com. Like us on Facebook at Lee Realty Group. All right, welcome back. We're still here with uh, our district attorney, Ray Crouch, of the 23rd District. And we were, uh, before the break, we were discussing kind of the Wiggins trial a little yeah. bit. So let's talk about how the actual trial, how that went, um, kind of what the evidence was. I know it was, they had, you had a lot of evidence on but, that. I mean, th this is a, again, a death penalty case, but it is a death penalty case with zero doubt as to who the defendant is right. and who committed the crime. Uh, so to start off with, we had Sergeant Baker's body camera, which captured the entire incident on camera, which is rare. I've never had in my 19 years as a prosecutor a murder captured on camera. So and that was actually shown in the courtroom? Yes, yes it yeah. was shown in the courtroom in, in the guilt phase and the sentencing phase. Uh, so we had that. Then we had the defendant's, uh, the, we had the murder weapon. We had the defendant's DNA on the murder weapon. We had ballistics testing done. There was uh, one of the the bullets, the fired rounds, was recovered from Sergeant Baker's arm, and it matched the characteristics of of, of the cartridge and the bullet. The, it's, I mean, we had. It's amazing you got to you got to do all this when you got the video evidence, you it, know. But, but we do, and, yeah. and it's you know you test all evidence, but when you're asking the state, when you're asking a jury to sentence someone to death, right. you leave zero doubt, right. and that's how it should be. I mean, you shouldn't ask to have someone executed unless there's right. no doubt. Right. Um, but in this case, we had his DNA, uh, we had ballistics testing, we had the murder weapon, we had his confession. I mean, he confessed after the manhunt, he confessed. Now, he mitigated in that confession, downplayed his, his, uh, at the reason for killing Sergeant Baker, which the reason he gave was a complete lie. Uh, he said that Sergeant Baker tried to yank his wife out of the car, which, as you can see on the body camera, yeah, was not, not true. Right. Uh, so that's a whole other component of the case. but um, Yeah, what was the defense? Uh, well, the, the defense in the guilt phase of the trial was that he didn't commit premeditated murder. They, they argued that he committed a knowing murder, but it wasn't premeditated. So they wanted the jury to convict him of second-degree murder. And, and the reason for that, the primary reason for that, is you can't seek the death penalty unless you're convicted of first-degree murder. Right. So that would have taken us out of the sentencing altogether. Now, he would have been sentenced by the judge if convicted of second-degree murder, but the range of punishment for second-degree murder is, is 15 to 25 years. Right, and he could have paroled, you know. It's a 100% sentence, but if he was sentenced to 25 years, you know, you, with the Tennessee Department of Corrections the way it is today, I, I, I wouldn't even guess at what point. It's supposed to be a 100% sentence, right. but they get out before that. Right. So during during the trial, I guess you watched the jury quite a bit. Well, 
Well, I don't stare at them. Yeah. <laughs> but I try to I, I try to see if they're nodding along, falling asleep, if we're being too boring, if we're doing too much, if they're nodding with the defense, if they like what they're seeing from their side. Yeah, I mean, we, we watch them. You actually personally presented this case, right? Yes. And you don't always do that all the time, do you? Well, I – I try to be in the courtroom as much as I can. Damn. I mean, I've, I've this this summer starting in well spring and summer, I've personally tried four murder cases. Wow. So I no I I we have thousands of cases pending. So no, I can't be the the prosecutor on each of them. Uh, but I, I love to be in the courtroom. In fact, if I could not be in trial, I, I would not want this job. Right. I mean, it, I, I want to be a an active courtroom prosecutor. Right. You you have to 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 stay. Uh, on top of your game, so to speak, and to stay current with the system and to know what's going on. Right, right. So how during the 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 trial, um, I, I think the the bakers were actually in in the courtroom most of the time. Every day, yeah. Lisa, and you know, I want to look right at yeah. your audience here. Lisa Baker is literally the strongest person I know. She has been at every proceeding from day one, beginning to end. It's been amazing. I mean, her strength is. Uh, is incredible. Yeah, and I don't know all the law enforcement community was really, really behind her and really yes. has has uh, gone beyond, you know, and I, and I know we're, we're just so, send our prayers to the family and, and hope that, um, you know, somehow she can get through this. I know it's, it's very difficult, but that had to have been difficult for her during, especially some of those videos that were played during the court. It, well, was she in there during that she, time? She was in there, and, and Lisa is – it had to be difficult. But like I said, she's the strongest person. I mean, the victim, she's incredible. Uh, it is hard on anybody who has had any involvement in this case. I mean, I've, I've seen that video uh, hundreds of times, literally. And, and I can tell you uh, that video in this case will haunt me yeah, uh, forever. But, but Lisa is incredible. Right, right. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Yep. The other big case was the, the the Joe Daniels case. Yes, yes. Now that was kind of a different ball game. I, totally different ball game. Right, because we didn't. You didn't have uh, little. You didn't find. We didn't find little Joe's body. That's correct. Not yet. Yeah. Right. I know that's continuing. On. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, talk about. You know, I was involved with. You know, when um, we were looking for him. You know. And they staged um, an area there where uh, everybody was looking. We we had all kinds of agencies come in and uh, participate in that, yes. which I was really yes. grateful for. It was amazing, you know? yeah. So, kind of walk us through that. How how did that go? You know, th- getting through the court system and through the grand jury and kind of because I know originally, you know, th- he said they they had no involvement at all. That that yeah. the, the boy had just walked out and he was just missing or whatever. Well, keep in mind the the case, as you were aware of, uh, started when when he and Crystal called. He called Joseph Daniels called nine one one and and said, uh, "My son has escaped the house and has gone missing." So that happens. Right. <clears throat> Law enforcement spent twenty four to forty eight hours. At, you might have even been there that searching. Was. Yes hundreds if not thousands of people searching i mean the the every i know it was incredible it 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 was incredible and every component of modern technology that you can think of was used to search but keep keep in mind the big change happened on april the 6th when joseph on his own initiative uh, he was asked if he would interview with law enforcement he drove himself to the dixon police department he wasn't in custody he drove him he and crystal drove themselves there they weren't forced to do that 
and he agreed to have an interview, and in that interview, then confessed to the crime. Now, that's where you see a lot of people, uh, they may not know that unless they watch the trial, that this wasn't some, uh, you know, terrorist interrogation. This was a man who drove himself to this interview and confessed to this crime. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, th- and that, of course, that changed the scope of everything. Yeah. And, and I, if I remember correctly, that was during uh, the time that we were still searching for the body and everything. And the search never stopped. Right. I mean, I was out there helping with searches, and the searches have, dis- despite what people may think, uh, searches have continued, continued, and continued. One of the pieces of evidence we submitted at trial was an Excel program documenting the hundreds of searches that have been that have occurred in this case it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive it is it really is has there been any uh you know um breakthroughs in that no. at all i mean nothing because no. i know uh, they, they went and uh, dug up around the house or whatever yes, and, and yes. nothing was ever so, so the digging occurred when i say digging it was more of removal of of the top layer of soil looking for soil disturbances uh, that was done based on uh, GPS data of different locations in and around their property that, uh, that where the phone had been pinging, so to speak. Gotcha. But it was based on GPS data. So, look, it, it wasn't – I had heard rumor, as we've talked about before, that there was a uh, an informant or a lead. No, it was based on locations where Joseph Daniel uh, or, this, or his phone were throughout the middle of the night. Gotcha. And, and, and we had, uh, I believe it was uh, doing our due diligence to make sure because uh, the body wasn't buried literally on the property. But it wasn't. I mean, and, it, and every area where his phone pinged on that property was excavated. So is there any theories as to what really happened? Well, there's theories, and then there are his lies. Right. Because uh, they are lies. Um, do I have? Because he retracted uh, afterwards, right? Not to us, he didn't. Oh, really? His, his so-called uh, recants came in the form of his lawyer saying that he had recanted. But he, he didn't recant in the interviews. Uh, n- never. And that's the thing. We put on a series of interviews uh, at the trial where he, he's not recanting. He, now, does he recant? Yes. Uh, and, and, and that comes but through his lawyers. Right. We have a letter that was written to him uh, that, that he wrote, not written to him, from jail where he recants and, and then places the blame on Crystal, right? He, he essentially reverses roles and, and says that it wasn't him that killed baby Joe, but that it was Crystal and that he was watching her do it. Wow. Wow. Because I know there was like um, there was some suggestion that maybe he had put his body up the loves at the on, you know, one of the dumpsters or whatever. And I think, actually, investigators went there, and, the, and there was nothing found of that, I don't think, was there? Well, there was nothing found. Uh, they, they did more than that. They contacted the uh, commercial, I guess you call them uh, landfills, where, where Love's contracts with. And uh, the problem with those landfills is, uh, you, you know, decomposition yes. is ha- happening, so there's no real way to do a thorough search there. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was checked. Yeah, how did how did that trial actually go? I know it, it was completely different from the other yeah. one, um, and I guess your whole concept in doing this trial was completely different too. The the Joe the Joseph Daniels prosecution was was uh, primarily what we call a circumstantial case, his confession and then the circumstances and other additional testimony and proof that we had corroborate his confession. 
versus the Wiggins case where we have it on camera right. uh, and a confession. I mean, that's direct evidence, uh, you know, camera, a crime caught on camera versus circumstantial where you're having to connect the dots. So it's it's an entirely different, uh, and it's way harder to. to I guess case. it's harder to prosecute too. It, it, it's harder to prosecute because you have to anticipate where the defense may go more so than you do in the, in the Wiggins case. But the law says, and in the instructions to the jury, that a circumstantial case can be equally or more strong than a direct evidence case. So it's not that. When people hear that it's a circumstantial case, it sounds like, well, that's a weak case, but not necessarily. Right. Uh, circumstances, when you put them on thick enough, can, can be strong or stronger than other types of cases. So, like, when you're gathering all the evidence, and because I know sometimes that these uh, people will pl- cop a plea, and, and then you don't even actually go to trial. It just moves straight to sentencing phase or whatever. Yes. Was that ever even contemplated on the defense side at all? With this case? Wait, which one? The, which case? The Daniels case? No. It wasn't? No. Okay. No. There, there was uh, uh, no, there were, there was never a plea discussion. That, that There was initially some discussions between myself and Joseph Daniels, Joe Daniels' lawyer, but not what you call plea discussions. I mean, w- we talked to the defense in every case. Right. Uh, but no, there was never a plea offer. Now, what was he? What was his actual uh, sentencing? So he was charged both with first degree murder. There are two forms of first degree murder: premeditated and murder uh, committed in the perpetration of a crime. They're both first degree. He was convicted of murder in the perpetration of another crime of child abuse. That is first degree murder. So he was convicted of the the, the handle for that. The short the short phrase is felony murder. He was convicted of felony murder, which is first-degree murder. He was also convicted uh, of second-degree murder. So in the first count, count one of the indictment, which was premeditated murder, the jury found him guilty of second-degree murder, which is a knowing and intentional killing. But they also found him guilty of the next count, which is the felony murder. Okay. All right. So in that particular case, because there was not a body, then uh, a death penalty kind of goes off the table? Yeah, oh, I, I didn't even consider uh, filing notice to seek the death penalty in that case because we don't have a body. Now, that doesn't make him any less guilty. Right. But to to get <clears throat> to have someone sentenced to death, the jury has to find beyond reasonable doubt certain aggravating factors. And a lot of aggravating factors have to do uh, with the victim, okay? Uh, for example, in the Wiggins case, mutilation of the body. Yeah. That, that's an aggravating factor. Well, since we didn't have a body in the Joe Clyde Daniels case, yeah, no, I, I, would, I would not seek the death penalty in a case without a body. Right. So from this point on, if a body was ever found, I mean, there's no, uh, that would be like double jeopardy. You could not go back and, and no, do anything. That case is done. I mean, it, it, double jeopardy has attached in, in Joseph Daniels' case. Now, Crystal Daniels still has a trial to go. Right. Uh, now, and as we've talked about, I, I'm not going to talk about her case because, no, no, no. you know, it's pending. Right. Uh, but everything we've discussed on the Joseph Daniels case is on court TV. Right. <laughs> right. But, uh, now, double jeopardy has now attached, so he could not be charged with anything else involving the death of Joe Clyde. Now, you did have, in, in the Daniels case, uh, you, you did have one of the, one of the children would testified, I yes. think. Yeah. Yes. How did that, because I know there was, that was like, uh, what, 
two or three years from the time that the crime committed till we actually got the trial. So, you know, when you're young, that's a huge difference in age, you know. Three years. Yeah. And, and this particular, I, I won't say his full name, but this particular brother who testified uh, was uh, eight years old when the crime occurred and 11 when he testified. And, and here's one little kind of unique uh, connection in, in the Wiggins and Joseph Daniels case is the search for Joe Clyde Daniels, uh, Daniel Baker was the very first witness on the scene. He was the first law enforcement officer on the scene wow. at Joe Clyde Daniels' search. Wow. Number one. Wow. Yep. And, and then less than two months later, he was murdered. I know. And these cases, that that's why we've said off air, it was so unique that both of these cases went to trial back-to-back. I know, and, that, and that's a cre- incredible a lot of work you have to do in yep. such a small period of time. Now, that jury was also sequestered, right? Uh, yes, and that jury came from Chattanooga. So to this summer, I, in my entire career, I never would have thought that I would have had two high-profile cases in which we go to East Tennessee yeah. in both cases to get juries, one from Chattanooga and one from Knoxville. Just crazy coincidence. Right, right, right. So... I know we've kind of talked about these cases a little bit. Now, I know they're they're the most public, but um, there's been a lot of other cases going on in, in the county that necessarily doesn't have, um, you know, the 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 stuff to uh, you know that's media wants to yeah. grab onto or right. whatever. But you know, but, but there's still a lot going on in Dixon County. Well. The, the the Daniels case and the Wiggins case have gotten media attention, but, but let's not forget there's other victims of crime, too. For, for example, uh, Kevin Rich, uh, who was who was murdered, and his trial was this spring. And, and then you have uh, uh, Danita Spears, her trial. She, she was the victim of murder. Her trial was uh, in April. And, and then Chris Clift. So we, we've had five homicide trials wow. in Dixon County here since from spring till now. And, you know, they're all important cases. There's there's not one that's right. any more or less important than the other. Some of them get media attention and some don't. Right, right. Why do you want to do this? Well, <laughs> <laughs> where you could be a, uh, you know, a different kind of attorney and making, you know, bukus of money yeah. or whatever. It, that's an interesting question, which is a, a lengthy answer, but to keep it short, I, I love being in the courtroom, but I also love helping victims. I love working with law enforcement. I love standing up for law enforcement. Uh, we're, we're living in a time and an age right now where, uh, you know, there's we seem to have lots of fragments of society, but, uh, you know, for, for law enforcement are good people, right? Yes. And, and, and there needs to be a, a strong outpouring of support for what they do. Now, are there always bad apples in the bunch? Sure. No matter what organization you're involved with, there's going to be a bad apple. But uh, I love working with law enforcement. I, I love working in the court system. Uh, and I love representing victims that can't stand up for themselves. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the drug task force. Because sure. I know you're, you're, you're in charge of that pretty much, right? Well, I'm not in charge of it, by, but... By statute, the district attorney uh, has to uh, authorize the implementation or organization of the drug task force. And with that comes my ability to hire and pick the director of the drug task force. So I am involved at many levels with the drug task force, but I do not oversee the day-to-day operations of it. I'm very fortunate to have a director who I hired. (laughs) His name is Brian Beasley, who is an incredible law enforcement officer and an, uh, has just done 
amazing things with the drug task force. Now, those officers come from all different departments in the jurisdiction, correct? Yeah, they are they are assigned from multiple law enforcement agencies, and, and that's what makes it a task force. Right, and do they get do they still get paid by those uh, agencies that they come from? They do. Okay. Yeah. So For example, uh, and, and some of them I'm not going to use their names because sure, yeah. they work undercover cases, but if, if, for example, there's someone assigned from McEwen Police Department, they're still paid by McEwen Police Department. They're just assigned to the drug task force. The advantage of that is because we have five counties, once you're assigned to a task force, that gives a McEwen officer five-county jurisdiction. Gotcha. And the importance of having a drug task force is so that you can focus on drug crimes. Uh, and a lot of the work they do goes unnoticed because it is undercover. Right. But, I mean, every year there are hundreds, if not thousands, uh, I wouldn't say thousands, but hundreds of long-term drug investigations and prosecutions that occur. Yeah. What, in Dixon County, you know, we, we see this all the time, but it, and I'm sure it's a problem everywhere, but we do have our share of drug-related incidents in Dixon County. Big time. Yeah. I, I get I get the uh, Passover reports from law enforcement, city and county, every morning. And there's a drug crime listed in every one of them. I mean, if, if people are not aware of the uh, influx of, of – and I'm not talking about marijuana here. Right. I'm talking about fentanyl, crack cocaine, methamphetamines – it's all over the place. I mean, people need to wake up to that. Yeah, I, know. Uh, I mean, we, we have multiple overdoses and, and deaths uh, in this jurisdiction from uh, these Schedule One and Two drugs. Uh, overdoses every day, and now it's becoming where we have uh, overdose deaths on a regular basis. Wow. At, at one point last year, uh, there were, I think, 21 or 22 overdose deaths in Cheatham County. Wow. I mean, it's, yeah, it's shocking. Is it because our proximity to Nashville, maybe? I don't know. It it can be, especially in Cheatham County, because, I mean, it's literally hooked to Nashville or joining Davidson County. But the real problem is is the fentanyl. It, yeah, I know. That's what causes the death. And, and so uh, any persons that are using a heroin or what they think are heroin or intentionally using fentanyl, they are... They are uh, every time they use it, they are I would say near death. I mean, <laughs> yeah, because I think uh, law enforcement has to be worried about even like touching it or whatever, right? Yes, I mean uh, an exposure to fentanyl can be lethal to anybody. Wow. Yes, and it takes such a small amount. Um, we're talking like the size of less than a size of a grain of rice. Right. It's, it's uh, shocking. So you think a lot of these people uh, are like that are dealing, they're all coming from out of town, do you think? or It's layered. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, on a local level, a lot of dealers are also users. So they're buying and selling to get their own fix. But are there dealers locally? Yes. I mean, it's like a pyramid organization. I mean, Nobody in the city of Dixon is 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 producing fentanyl, right? Uh, but they're receiving it from somewhere else. So it's it, it's layered. I mean, it's coming in. A lot of it comes in through through our borders. I mean, right. and, and not just through Mexico, but through Canada, uh, overseas. Uh, lots of fentanyl is uh, seized at ports, uh, ocean ports. So so it, it it has to get here, right? So you have dealers, you have infrastructures that are that are pushing it down the line. So you know, one of the objectives of the drug task force is to try to work their way up that line. Right. Uh, 
naturally that involves are you going to be arresting some local dealers who are also users? Yes. They get caught up in that big net too. Is the migration issue of illegal immigration, is that part of the problem too, you think? I, I don't know if it's migration per se. Can migration uh, conceal or mask some of the influx of drugs? Yes. Uh, but there is a significant issue with the border, all of the borders, because that's how the drugs get in. Right. So I, I'm not going to link it to migration, but I, I will link it directly to a lack of security at the border. Right. I mean, that, that you yeah, you talk to any person uh, with a DEA or Border Patrol, I mean, it's coming from the border, right? One country or another. That's how most of the fentanyl gets into the United States. Right, and 40 is kind of like a um, direct highway from the southwest into the northeast or whatever. It is a primary supply line, and you, you know nobody can question that. I mean, it is a major artery running east to west, and drugs have to get from point A to point B. And so we... In, in, in your jurisdiction, you're primarily focused on, especially out the interstate, because, of course, that's, that's where everybody sees the drug, drug yeah, task force yeah. out on the interstate. So we're primarily concerned with uh, getting the drugs off the street, right? Yeah, so, you know, uh, people usually associate the drug task force with the interstate, but that's actually a very small yeah, minority of right. the drug task force employees. Uh, most of them are working undercover here locally on the streets working these investigations. What the interdiction guys do is is they are looking for major shipments of narcotics on the interstate. So, uh, yeah, and you would be shocked at the amount of information and intelligence that's gathered by making those stops because you can then trace forward and backward down and up the line to see where they're going, develop supply routes and uh, destinations and, and uh, sources of origination. I mean, and then these agencies all... Uh, share information with each other. It's it is uh, anybody. Well, I hope everybody knows that there are actual drug organizations that are organized. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's not just some chaotic movement of drugs. It's well, especially on the interstate. You know, yes. most of those guys are like carriers or whatever for yes. You know, a cartel or whatever. Most of the people that are carrying major loads of drugs probably don't even know where the drugs are in their car. What they're done, they, they're given $1,000 cash and said, drive this car from point A to point B, get wow. out and find your way back, or get out and pick up this car. They're not told where the drugs are hidden because they don't want there to be a connection made, right? right. They, they truly are, have plausible deniability. So what happens to somebody who does, uh, you know, get pulled over and they really don't know and they find it? They, they actually they go into the court system and they have to go through this whole... The, the some, some of them do and some of them don't. It depends on their level of culpability. I mean, if you truly have someone, for example, uh, who is a, a, in a vehicle that they just picked up uh, and, and are driving and have no connection to a dealer on either end, you, you know, they may not be charged, but they're interviewed. And, and that's when things start to truly reveal themselves right. because if they have a text message saying take this kilo of cocaine to Kingston Springs, Tennessee, well, then you know they have direct knowledge and involvement in the case. So it depends. I mean, they have the discretion to not charge them, and, and people that have no knowledge of it at all that are truly just driving a car are likely not charged. But many of them have a lot more knowledge than they want to let on. Right, right. 
Well, I hate to say this, but we're coming to the end of the show. All right. I mean, this has been incredible. Yeah. And I want you to come back because we I still have a lot of things we want to talk about, but we really appreciate you taking your time. I know you're busy. I, you probably want to go home and rest and <laughs> after all this trial. You see stuff. the bags under my eyes? So we I, I just want to say we appreciate what you do. Thank I know you. your job is unappreciated sometimes. Um, yeah, but we I, I appreciate what you do and I'm sure most Dixon Countyans appreciate what you do. So thanks for having me. I so appreciate being you. here. Thank you. Hey, we appreciate you tuning into our show. Uh, please check us uh, on Fridays from 12 to 1. You can also uh, look at Facebook because we archive these on my Facebook and YouTube channel at the Jeff E.B. Show. So please like and share and like and subscribe. And uh, we really want to get the, the Dixon uh, County people to see what's going on in Dixon County. I think this, this, said you're, this is one of your first uh, interviews you've had like this. Yes. So that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. We appreciate you coming on. So join us next week. We have Judge, judge Monsu, the General Sessions Court judge, coming up next week. And that's going to be really interesting to talk about how that court system works and uh, be a lot of great information that I think everybody will enjoy seeing. So we appreciate you tuning in, and uh, we will see you next week. Thank you for watching. We know that you enjoyed today's show. Join us each Friday on your lunch break at 12 p.m. for new insights into local events, politics, and all things Dixon County. Remember to like us on Facebook and subscribe on YouTube at The Jeff Eby Show or visit our website, thejeffebyshow.com. Thanks for listening to The Jeff Eby Show. Join us next Thursday morning at 1130 for more conversation about everything Dixon County. And keep up to date at thejeffebyshow.com.